Heather McElhatton, and today on A Beautiful World, we're looking at the gift of failure. History's filled with failures. The Beatles, for instance, were first turned down by Decca Records. MLK once got a C in speech class. And Thomas Edison said, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways it won't work. And what these failures all have in common is that something great came out of them. So today we're looking at stories that feature failures that have gifts inside. Bad situations that turn out well. Unlikely endings to sometimes pretty terrible stories. Our first story is about finding something amazing by falling down. The history of exploration is built on failures. Or so says Adam Schultz, who's a modern-day Canadian Indiana Jones. Schultz is 27 years old, and he's a fellow at the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. His specialty is the subarctic region of the Hudson Bay Lowlands, which is the third largest wetland in the entire world, which he says is as exciting as it is dangerous. Consider the trek he took on a nameless river in northern Canada in 2011. 22 days into the expedition, after battling hypothermia and dragging a loaded canoe upriver in the Arctic conditions, his partner just decided to go home. Just decided the weather conditions were too severe, and he used a satellite phone to call a rescue pilot to come get him, leaving Adam to finish the expedition alone. Adam pushed on, paddling up the brutal river, and then he said he rounded a bend on a rainy evening, and he saw the unthinkable. I was out on the tundra, so there's no trees. It's just windswept, desolate, Arctic tundra. I see what looks like a big iceberg uh, looming out of the river, this big mass of white. And then when the iceberg started to move upriver, that's when I realized that, no, this isn't an iceberg at all. It's the biggest, the biggest polar bear I've ever laid eyes on, a massive adult male polar bear, probably weighed over 1,000 pounds. And this polar bear, unlike any other bear that I've ever encountered, has no fear of me, and it's coming straight at me in my canoe. And, you know, I'm actually a big animal lover myself. Uh, you know, so the last thing I'd ever want to do is have to shoot a polar bear, but that's, that is government policy. Anyone working in, in the Arctic in polar bear territory has to carry a shotgun. Bear spray just isn't really enough to stop a polar bear. So it got to the point where I actually had my shotgun loaded, pressed to my shoulder, and I'm looking down the barrel at this massive polar bear showing me its teeth coming straight at me in the river. And the river is very shallow. It's only about two feet deep. So the bear can cross it in, you know, 10 seconds and be on top of me. And this standoff just sort of dragged on for several minutes, my camera recording in the bottom of the canoe the whole time, uh, before the current in the river took me about 100 feet or so. And at that point, I felt safe enough where I could set down my shotgun, grab my paddle, and, and paddle out of there. On one of Schultz's more recent expeditions, he was in northern Canada once again, on a river called the Again River. And he says it took him 10 days just to get to the river, hiking through dense forests, dragging a loaded canoe behind him. And this river had a name, but it had never been fully mapped before. Adam only had blurry satellite photos from the 1950s to go by. And he knew that there'd be some white water on the river, but he had no idea what he was about to discover. He says he was making his way around another bend in the river on yet another rainy day, when he heard a roaring sound. Only this time, it wasn't a polar bear. It was the water roaring. 
He says that the water started to pull his canoe quickly downriver in a fierce current, and he tried to back paddle, but it didn't work. Then, he says, the water just disappeared in front of him. He discovered a waterfall, which is a lifetime achievement for any explorer. But of course, he discovered it by falling over it. Well, my first thought was, this is really exciting. I discovered a waterfall. I'm getting swept straight over it. This is going to be bad. And then when I went over the waterfall, I mean, it was a really narrow part of the river. I mean, uh, so all this water was just being squeezed through sort of a narrow channel. So it was really furious, uh, just like a cauldron of white water at the bottom. And even with my life jacket on, it was so strong, I was sucked down underwater. So I was quite worried. I mean, you know, it felt like an eternity, but it's probably no more than 20 seconds, right? But when you're underwater, everything is in slow motion. And I was really worried that I wasn't going to be able to get back up to the surface. And when I finally did, I was just happy to be alive and uh, had to swim to shore and um, get everything out, fish it all out of the river. And I thought, you know, maybe I could quit. No one would really blame me if I quit now, but I never really liked to quit, and I've never used search and rescue on any of my expeditions, so I didn't want to start then. And I figured um, there's nothing a little duct tape can't fix, so pretty used to working on canoes. I was able to repair it with what equipment I had and continue downriver. That's why uh, I always say, you know, you never go into the wilderness without uh, a generous supply of duct tape. It comes in handy in so many different ways. So after Schultz went over the waterfall, he collected all of his gear, patched his boat up, and then he kept going downriver, where he discovered six more waterfalls, making seven in all, which is a lifetime achievement, achieved by falling down repeatedly. And I asked Adam what kept him going out there when things got tough, why when other people left, he'd stay. And he said that reading the journals of old explorers was a source of great inspiration for him many of whom are famous not for what they set out to do, but for failing. The whole history of exploration is pretty much the history of, of failures. I mean, some of the greatest explorers, they're famous now not for what they set out to do, but for, for failures. I mean, Alexander Mackenzie, who's one of the greatest of North American explorers, um, he tried to reach the Pacific Ocean in 1789, and he wound up traveling several thousand kilometers in the wrong direction and found himself on the coast of the Arctic Ocean. Um, but now the longest river in Canada, sort of like our Mississippi, is the Mackenzie River. It's named in his honor. But at the time, in the 18th century, Alexander Mackenzie called that river uh, the Disappointment River because he was so crestfallen and heartbroken that he hadn't wound up on the Pacific. But today he's sort of acknowledged as a great explorer, even though he didn't wind up where he was intending to go. And uh, the same is also true of uh, Ernest Shackleton, one of the greatest explorers of Antarctica. Uh, Shackleton, you know, he's a legend today, but in his own time, he never once actually succeeded on any of his expeditions of reaching his objective. He set off to reach the South Pole. He never made it. And then in 1914, he went back to the Antarctica uh, with the intention of crossing the entire continent uh, from one side to the other. And the whole expedition was a disaster. His ship got trapped in the ice. It sunk. Uh, and he had to get out of there. Uh, but ma he managed to do so and save every one of his crew. Everyone survived. And today he's considered an inspiration and, you know, one of the greatest leaders in all of history, not just greatest explorers, even though at the time he never actually succeeded on any of his expeditions. So sometimes, I mean, it sounds a bit cliche, but, uh, you know, to find yourself, you have to lose yourself first. And that's certainly been true in the history of exploration. Um, you never really know what you're going to find. You just kind of set off into the unknown with the right attitude and anything can happen. Chris Calabello is a baseball player from the Minnesota Twins. He's had a long, 
and slow journey to the top. And he's no stranger to failure. ABW correspondent Daniel Wanshura went and talked to Chris Calabello about his journey to success through failure. My earliest dreams, the things that I remember involved the game, and uh, in particular, being able to play in big leagues. That's the only thing I think I ever envisioned myself doing. Baseball was a huge part of my life, and throughout my formative years, and you know, the only vision I ever had was to get drafted and play Major League Baseball. In 2012, after seven years of playing independent ball in the Canadian American Baseball League, Calabella was finally offered a contract from a major league organization. Needing some positional depth at first base, the Minnesota Twins inked the 28-year-old to a minor league contract and assigned him to their double-A farm team. But before you start thinking Calabello's struggles were now behind him, think again. In just his second month in the minor leagues, his confidence bottomed out. It was the first time I didn't hit 300 in my career. I was at a, at a low that mentally, emotionally, I don't think people can really understand when you, know, you talk about the game of baseball because on the surface we see the game, but for me there was a ton of failure, a ton of failure and a ton of adapting and getting used to my environment. And at the end of May, I, was, I really would go to the field every day thinking I might get released today. But he didn't get released. He kept grinding away at his goal and eventually overcame the struggles that haunted him earlier in the year. He finished the season leading the team with 19 home runs and 98 RBIs. Then, in May 2013, Calabella received the news he'd been waiting his whole life to hear. He was going to the big leagues. He played 55 major league games in 2013, but finished with a disappointing 192 batting average. After the season, the Twins negotiated to trade his rights to a Korean team. If he approved the deal, Calabella would make a reported $1 million significantly more than he would make with the Twins. It was an easy choice. His decision was no. As honored as I was to get those offers, and it wasn't, you know, my aspiration when I was a kid. Like, the money, the money was so secondary. It really, I mean, still secondary. You know, what it came down to for me is I, I didn't think last year was a very accurate representation of who I was as a player. I thought I had a lot left to offer the game here, and, you know, as long as somebody told me there was still an opportunity to do that over here, I was going to try to pursue it and, and fulfill it. Even if it meant leaving $1 million and a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity on the table, people told him he was out of his mind. Yeah, I mean, people tell me I'm crazy all the time, but a lot of people, I guess, don't think like me, or for me... I've always seen people that have become the most successful people at their trade or in their fields that pursued passion and pursued desire to be the best, not, oh, well, there's more money on this side, like, let me go there. So there's plenty of opportunities in life to make money, I feel like, and maybe I'm crazy to say that. Maybe some people look at me and think I have seven heads or whatever, and it's just, that's the way I feel, that's what I've seen, that's what life has told me, so that's kind of the, the motto I live by. Calabello made the Twins' opening day roster after having a terrific 2014 spring training performance. He parlayed his spring training success into several achievements during the first month of the regular season, including breaking Kirby Puckett's Twins' team record for most RBI in the month of April and helping the Twins to a winning record. 
it's so much more about the process to get there because winning is really a byproduct of hard work, preparation, competition. Winning is not something that it's just tangible that you just grab, but you're, you're defined by it. When I break it down to like its simplest roots, like how do you win? We score more runs than the other team. How do you score more runs than the other team? Well, you got to have better at bats than the other team. You got to play better defense than the other team. So it's not like you go out there and the result is right there for you to grab. There's a whole process involved in creating the result. And when you can allow yourself to control the process, when everything's said and done, you put yourself in way better positions to be successful and success defined in, in result terms. But I define success as, as a process. There's a mental aspect to it. There's a preparation aspect. And, and that's ultimately what I was able to do in any ball. I don't, I don't, wouldn't change a thing. I mean, I, I think to be able to get here the way I did, I don't think I'm special for it, but it allowed me to grow and mature probably at a different, in a different way than most guys do. It certainly hasn't been an easy journey to success for Chris Calabello and likely never will be, but that's okay with him because he never expected it to be. Putting yourself in a position to, to do the things that you want to do in life, that's beautiful. That's part of what makes America so wonderful and, and what makes life so wonderful is the, the ability to wake up and control decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think being around people that you want to be around that bring a smile to your face, that have a way of, of making you feel good about what you're doing, I think that's the number one thing for me. If you don't wake up every day and have an aspiration to do something, you lose out a lot in life. And I think part of the beauty of it is the struggle, too. Like, I, if everything was easy, it wouldn't be worth doing because I think the best moments that I've experienced in baseball and in life have come after a struggle. That was ABW correspondent Daniel Wanshura reporting. And the postscript to this story is that Chris Colabella was in the papers again recently. It turns out that the Twins sent him down to the minor leagues. He's now playing for the AAA team, the Rochester Red Wings. So it looks like the cycle of success and failure is going to start up all over again for Colabello. But in his own words, success is a process. the High Line. It was built in the 1930s. It used to deliver goods and merchandise to all the factories that once populated the area. It hasn't been used in decades. It's rusty. All the entrances and exits are boarded up. And when you look up from the street, you can see weeds and grasses growing on the top of it. In fact, most people in the neighborhood wanted to tear it down. And the city had started a petition to have it demolished. And that's when Joshua David, who's a freelance writer living in the neighborhood, he was assigned a story. He was supposed to write about the East Village and how it had changed over the years, how it had gone from a manufacturing area filled with factories to an upscale, trendy neighborhood filled with art galleries and restaurants and expensive condominiums. And Joshua says that he walked up and down every street, and that's when he realized for the first time that the High Line wasn't in sections. It was one long, uninterrupted train track. He wondered what it looked like up there. 
he wondered if he could see it for himself. So he went to a community board meeting and he met Richard Hammond, who's a painter that also lives in the neighborhood. And the two of them got to thinking, what if we could save the High Line? What if we could convince people that it's something worth fighting for? Well, they knew the first thing they had to do was go up and see it for themselves. So they contacted the railroad company and they asked for a tour. And when we stepped out onto it, it was just the most breathtaking thing. It lay out in front of you as far as the eye could see, all covered with, with wildflowers and wild grasses, just stretching through this canyon of old industrial warehouses and factories and smokestacks on the west side of Manhattan. And it just looked amazing, like this amazing hidden garden that was just a block away from my house that I'd been living a block away from for 15 years and never knew it was there. It was astonishingly, astonishingly beautiful. And if we'd had an idea before, then maybe saving the High Line was a good idea. When we, when we saw it up, up top there, we were like, this is it. We have to do this. So Joshua David and Richard Hammond decided to work together to save the High Line. But then something bad happened. The city actually scheduled the demolition of the old train track. So Joshua and Richard, even though they were just a writer and a painter, they decided to sue the city of New York. But then something even more unlikely and unbelievable happened. 9-11 happened. I was on a conference call with other people about the High Line when the towers fell. And um, I think we thought that, like, like we thought so much in New York was over on that day we just you know it was it was a, a, a terrible 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 day for so many in so many different ways but as people who had a very particular project that we were carrying forward we said well that's the end of the high line nobody's going to care about this now but david was wrong new yorkers turned out in large numbers to help the high line everybody wanted to be part of rebuilding new york city David and Hammond ended up starting an organization called Friends of the High Line, which raised over $150 million to save the old elevated track. And the largest contributor to the fund was the city of New York, the very people who they'd sued earlier to keep the High Line intact. So with all this money, they had to decide what to do with it. One woman in Germany wanted to turn the High Line into a mile and a half long swimming pool. Someone else wanted to drop a big roller coaster on it. And someone else said that they should let the grass grow and then just put a bunch of cows up there and let them graze around. But in the end, everybody decided that what the High Line should become was a park. We cut the ribbon, and right as we cut the ribbon, the, 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 all, the, all the gates, there, there were at that point, I think, five staircases at different stages on the High Line. They all opened to the public, and people just poured up. And after 10 years of working on making this thing op- able to be open to the public, to open the doors and have the public flood in up the stairs, and it was like in that instant, it, it came to life. It, it, it took on a life of its own, um, and it was just... just incredibly magical and moving to see. I, I always wonder, will, I, will it normalize for me? Will I take it for granted ever? And, and will it just become sort of part of my life? And I tell you, every single time I walk up the stairs and step out on it, I'm, I'm amazed. I'm amazed that it happened. I'm amazed that I was part of it. I'm amazed that, that this exists in New York City and that the, the mayor and our senators and all of these 
very influential people rallied around this crazy, crazy, crazy idea. And now it's part of New York City. It never ceases to amaze me. The High Line was a derelict, an eyesore, something that most people wanted torn down. But Joshua David and Richard Hammond saw something else. They turned a failure into something fantastic. And I had to ask him, how can we bring beauty into our lives? How can we make our worlds more beautiful? How can we make our lives more beautiful? I think it's about looking at what, where there is beauty around you and finding out how you can be a part of it, add to it, preserve it, um, care for it, um, reveal it, having a keen eye for what are the things that have meaning around you in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in your daily life and making sure that you're playing a role in making them all that they can be. Next guest is not only a singer, a rapper, and a lyricist, she's also an author and a public speaker. Her name is Dessa, and her most recent full-length album is called Parts of Speech. I got a chance to talk to Dessa at the UBS Forum in downtown St. Paul last week, and I asked her about a commencement speech she recently wrote, the topic of which was failure. I went to the U of M and uh, the University of Minnesota, and they asked if I would present the commencement speech for the College of Liberal Arts. And I was very flattered by that, which is a great way to get anybody to do anything. So I was like, absolutely, in my professional voice. And then I thought, uh, <laughs> you know, I want to I wanna impress, to be honest, the academics who asked me to present it. But it felt like rather than reaffirm the importance of a, a liberal arts education in the workplace, um, that the more, the more genuine message, at least, that I knew how to give to the students who were graduating that day had to do with, with failure. Um, to me, I might be in the minority on stage today and that I don't know, I'm not very sentimental about failure. I think it sucks. Uh, I hate how it feels. I hate how it looks when I'm watching people watch me do it. Um, but I think it's, it's necessary. And then I, while I understand the desire to avoid failure, and I think that's perfectly normal, that the desire to leave, lead a passionate and full life must be measured against one's desire to avoid failure. So failure is super easy to avoid 100% of the time if you just don't try to do anything. Um, uh, I mean, that's... <laughs> I'm sure that's already on a coffee cup, so. It is now. Hold thine applause, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think a willingness to undergo the unpleasantness of it allows, allows one to be sufficiently engaged in their own lives and to be ambitious and to try for things even that they're not sure that they can do. So you can either guess at the limits of your own ability or let other people tell you what you can and can't do, or you can collect the empirical evidence. And doing that involves failing at stuff. That's right. Yep, that's exactly right. So I let you pick the songs that you were gonna play tonight, and you're gonna play us one more. And why did you pick the song you picked? 
Um, the honest answer is, I was like, what three songs can we do really well and consistently live? But then I knew it was about failure, so I'm looking for like the subtext and all those songs. So the first one we did was about a, a romantic failure. And um, the next song that we're doing was a risk in some ways, because for me it was the single from my, from my first full-length album. And uh, if you are being safe, you choose a song that's got a real you know, recognizable chorus. So I decided to do one in 3-4 with a clarinet sample uh, and a non-repeating chorus. Some hard goodbyes. Call me up day and night. Free drinks and bad advice. And it's not much. But my money's on you. It's not much. But my money, my money's on you. Yeah, my money's on you. Yeah, my money's on you. Yeah, my money, my money, my money's on Yeah, my money's on my money's on you. That was Dessa performing her song, Dixon's Girl, live on stage at the UBS Forum in downtown St. Paul. There's a man named Jason Paget, and he says that once upon a time, he was a real partier. He drove a Camaro, had a mullet, and said that his life was basically just going from party to party to party. 
And everything changed one night outside a karaoke bar in a parking lot at night when Jason Paget was attacked. It was a vicious, brutal attack, and Jason says he never saw it coming. We were walking. The next thing I saw, like a bright flash of light, and I'm getting hit from all these different directions. And I remember first thinking it was a gang, like 12 people. Somehow I got attacked by a gang, and I don't know why. And then uh, I remember realizing, no, it's two guys. And then thinking, I'm going to die, and I'm going to die right now, this imminent feeling of death. And then that fight or flight thing came on, and one of them was in front of me, and I could see you know, his like belt buckle and his pants, and I grabbed his leg and pulled him down, and I bit on the, on the inside of his thigh, and I cracked my front teeth because I bit so hard. And, and then as I was just biting him as hard as I could, his buddy just started kicking me in the back of the head and, and in the back repeatedly until finally the guy that was just kicking me said, uh, give me your goddamn jacket. And I literally let go of his friend, wrote through my jacket off, rolled off of him, and they grabbed my jacket and ran away. And the whole thing was probably like 35, 40 seconds. So Jason was rushed to the hospital, where doctors said he had a severe concussion and a bleeding kidney. They gave him some pain medications and they sent him home. Jason said right away he knew that something was wrong. The world looked different. He said it looked like a fractured mirror with all the corresponding geometric pieces rippling in front of him as he moved. But then he thought it was just the pain medication, so he says he went to bed. But in the morning when he woke up, he knew that something was really wrong when he went to the bathroom, turned on the water, and the water came out in spiraling triangles. This is the best way I can think to describe it. It's like, you know how you're, if you're watching TV, you can hit pause, and then you can hit pause again, and you can see each little picture frame? It's like that, but in real time. And things, instead of looking like smooth little spirals, now they just look like they have little tangent lines around the edges. It makes like water going down a drain like look very triangular. Yeah, but technically, yeah, it's a recursive form of the Pythagorean theorem. It's like saying A squared plus B squared equals C, then you re-input C as A and keep B always equaling 1 or varying B. And, you know, how those numbers vary makes it spiral tighter or longer, you know. It's just, but it's beautiful. Jason Paget had been attacked and he woke up a mathematical genius. One of the few documented cases of acquired savant syndrome in the United States. He says that his new world looked bizarre and beautiful, but despite the beauty, his new condition terrified him, and that it arrived with dark passengers. I was completely alone in my house. I was totally agoraphobic permanently, and OCD came with this. There's a flood of so much information visually that I just started noticing everything that somebody touched. You know, they just touched their nose, and they touched that, and then they touched this, and now they want me to eat that cupcake that they handed me? No way. You know, and suddenly noticing all that, I started obsessing over, like, germs, and it got out of control, of course, because here I am not going anywhere, being kind of antisocial, uh, having rugs and blankets over my windows. And uh, it got so bad, I remember I was like Lysoling my money and then putting it in the microwave for like 30 seconds to make sure all the germs were, were dead on it. It was, it was ridiculous. For three long years, Jason Paget lived as a shut-in. He put blankets over the windows. He didn't leave the house. He didn't let anyone come to see him. He didn't tell anybody about his new mathematical ability. He says he began drawing the world around him in order to better understand it. In fact, it was only on a rare outing to Subway to get lunch 
when Jason finally did connect with the outside world. He says a stranger walked up to him and asked him what he was drawing. He says it looked mathematical. The stranger turned out to be a physicist, and he told Jason that he should go back to school because what he was drawing was trigonometry. And Jason says he was so relieved to meet somebody who understood at all what was happening to him. He did exactly that. He enrolled in school, and that was the beginning of the mistake that turned into the miracle. If I had to go back, I would definitely go through it again. <laughs> Even the dark times, because now it's, there's been a lot more past that. The big thing was is when I went back to school and, uh, and had this outlet to start learning, and as soon as I went back to school, I met my wife. And uh, now we're married, and we've had this, like, been together now like eight years, and uh, it's just been a perfect relationship that's gotten better, and we're having a baby in 79 days if she comes on time, so we're going to have another little girl. So it's like, it's like now, if you would have asked me during those first three years, I, I, you know, I thought, well, this part was great, but I get muscle tremors throughout my whole body permanently from this, uh, and I get these horrible headaches, but still the good far outweighs the bad. And now with my wife and the baby, I was like, I'd have to go through it all again, because the good is definitely outweighs the bad. <laughs> Jason Paget hopes that this new and artistic way of looking at math helps kids learn more about the mathematical world. He's actually written a book about his experience called Struck by Genius, which is available in stores now. Now, if you want to talk about really big failures, a good place to look is up at the sky. The Mars Exploration Program at NASA has been riddled with failures. They've been exploring Mars for decades, or trying to, but they haven't had much luck getting their equipment onto the planet. Imagine how hard it, it must be to take really precise scientific instruments, package it up in a big rocket, shoot it across space for eight months, 360 million miles, and then have it burst through the hostile atmosphere of Mars and land gently on the surface of the planet so that the precise equipment can go to work. It's a tough assignment. And NASA has lost several rovers in the past. They've either slammed into the surface of Mars or burned up on entry or, or just missed the planet completely. So back in 2011, NASA tried to send a rover up again with a different design. And Adam Steltzner is the lead mechanical engineer for the Mars Curiosity rover. He spent the better part of a decade designing the Curiosity rover with a large team of expert engineers working beneath him. Now he said that Learning from their past mistakes is critical to finding a design that worked. You certainly learn a lot from your successes, but I think it's sort of common knowledge in my business, and certainly it is the truth of my experience in life, that you learn the most from failure. And, uh, you know, when people look at the Sky Crane landing system that landed the Curiosity rover on Mars, uh, they think of it as being sort of out of the box and a completely new and different design. But it really is the response to lessons we learned through failure. Steltzner's use of failure to fuel success 
goes one step further. His own life began in a less than ideal scenario. He says he never did well in school. He even received an F plus in geometry during high school. And in his 20s, he was playing bass in a rockabilly band. His father told him that he would never amount to anything. And he'd probably end up a ditch digger. In fact, Stelzner credits all of his current success to his father. My father didn't live life to the fullest. And uh, in a major way, he shrank from life. He was a brilliant man, super gifted, absolutely amazingly creative, really an engineer uh, in heart, an artist in, at heart. Uh, uh, but he never really lived into either of those. And his life was in some ways a cautionary tale for me. I saw that holding back didn't get you anything. And at some point in my life, I think around the time I noticed the movement of the stars in the night sky, I decided that it was worth wagering and losing than never placing the bet. Well, Steltzner placed his bet and he won. The Mars Curiosity rover landed successfully went to work, and it is still there on Mars over two years later, carrying some of the most advanced scientific gear ever to make it onto the Mars surface. guest was the inspiration for our theme today, The Gift of Failure. Sarah Lewis is known for her work on President Barack Obama's Arts Policy Committee. She's also been selected for Oprah's Power List and is a faculty member at Yale University. Her new book is called The Rise, Creativity, The Gift of Failure, and the Search for Mastery. For 15 years, Sarah Lewis searched for hidden stories about the lives and inventors and artists and everyone else she could find who had built their rises from improbable foundations. She found out that MLK received C's in his oratory class twice. Thomas Edison claimed he hadn't failed. He'd just found 10,000 ways something wouldn't work. J.K. Rowling felt that rock bottom was a solid foundation on which to build. And Samuel Morris spent 26 years trying to be a painter before he invented the telegraph. I spoke to Miss Lewis live at the UBS Forum in downtown St. Paul, 
and my first question was, why is it important for all of us to talk about failure? We, we find ourselves in a kind of a company, and I think there's comfort in that, in knowing that the path towards what some might call success, what I really look at more as mastery, is actually aided by the very things that we'd like to avoid. When I was putting together all these stories and, and reading your wonderful book, I kind of, there were two things that kind of kept coming up, it seemed, for me. There are two important ways to turn a mistake into a miracle. Um, observe, well, endurance first, to endure the blow or the put down or the yeah. setback, to endure it, mm-hmm. and then to observe it. That's a really important part of the process. I love the way you put that. The stories that I look at, and there are 150 different individuals, you know, contemporary figures, timeless figures, um, bear out that principle. My favorite story that speaks to the importance of doing both, you know, enduring a failure but then observing it, is that of Andre Geim and Konstantin Novoselov, who just won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the first ever two-dimensional object on the Earth. It's replacing silicone. It's called graphene. And it's thinner than silk, this material, you know, stronger than steel, the most conductive material they've ever found. If you created a car out of this material, it could drive through any wall in existence, but it would be lighter than almost a feather. You know, it's amazing, right? How do they discover this material? <laughs> Two things. They created a safe haven for themselves. Right? through these Friday night experiments they'd have where they would play with really outlandish ideas. that They, they kind of set aside time set aside to time. muck about. Exactly. And they mucked about in ways that were really childlike. They used scotch tape and graphite to find this wonder material. That's it. And it was so rudimentary and so childlike that when they submitted their findings to Nature, the preeminent journal, they rejected it. They, they told them that they did not, it did not constitute a significant scientific advance which Andre Geim, of course, quoted back in his Nobel Prize speech. Uh, it was That's got to be a good moment. <laughs> <laughs> and he, his idea is that it's better to be wrong than boring, you know. So he <laughs> creates these Friday night experiments where they can endure these failures and, and also observe them, you know. Would you consider reading an excerpt for us? Sure. Okay. Yeah. So this is uh, Sarah Lewis reading an excerpt from her book, The Rise, Creativity, the Gift of Failure, and the Search for Mastery. So, you know, I think I'll start a little earlier and I'll go into Wherever you're comfortable. We've heard the stories. Duke Ellington would say, I merely took the energy it takes to pout and wrote some blues. Tennessee Williams felt that apparent failure motivated him. He said, it sends me back to my typewriter that very night, before the reviews are out. I'm more compelled to get back to work than if I had a success. Many have heard that Thomas Edison told his assistant, incredulous at his perseverance through jillions of reported attempts, I have not failed, I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Quote, only one look is enough. Hardly one copy would sell here. Hardly one, hardly one, many thanks, read part of the rejection letter that Gertrude Stein received from a publisher in 1912. The 1930s RKO screen test response, can't sing, can't act, balding, can dance a little, was in reference to Fred Astaire. (laughs) We hear more stories from commencement speakers, from J.K. Rowling to Steve Jobs to Oprah Winfrey, who move past bromise to tell the audience of the uncommon means through which they came to live to the heights of their capacity. 
Yet the anecdotes of advantages gleaned from moments of potential failure are often considered cliché, or insights applicable to some, not lived out by all. This book is about the advantages that come from the improbable grounds of creative endeavor, brilliant inventions and human feats that have come from labor, an endeavor that offers the world a gift from the maker's soul. All of these involve a path aided by the possibility of setbacks and the inestimable gains that experience can provide. This book rarely uses the word failure, though it is at the heart of its subject. The word failure is imperfect. Once we begin to transform it, it ceases to be that any longer. The term is, off of, also, sorry, the term is always slipping off the edges of our vision, not simply because it's hard to see without wincing, but because once we are ready to talk about it, we often call the event something else. A learning experience, a trial, a reinvention, no longer the static concept of failure. The word was, after all, not designed for us, but to assess creditworthiness in the 19th century, a term for bankruptcy, a seeming dead end forced to fit human worth. Perhaps a 19th century synonym comes closer, blankness, a poetic term then used for the experience of wiping clean that this whole event can provide. Blankness hints, too, at the limitlessness that often comes next. Trying to find a precise word to describe the dynamic is fleeting, like attempting to locate francium, an alkali metal measured but never isolated in any quantity or seen in any way that the eye can detect, one of the most unstable enigmatic elements on the earth. No one knows what it looks like in an appreciable form, but there it is, scattered throughout ores in the earth's crust. Many of us have a similar sense that these implausible rises must be possible, but the stories tend to stay strewn throughout our lives, never coalescing into a single dynamic. As it is with an archer's target panic, an experience widely felt but not often glimpsed, the phenomenon remains hidden and little discussed. Partial ideas do exist, resilience, reinvention, and grit but there's no one word to describe the passing yet vital constant truth that just when it looks like winter, it is spring. <laughs> so beautiful. This book is so in- well and incredibly researched. You know, you know, at the back of the book, you have all your references, and it's, it's a big piece of the book itself. So how did you do your research? How did you choose you know, where to go looking for these stories? Yeah, the terror of a contract is a good motivating force. <laughs> Deadlines, yeah. 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 Uh, that's truly part of what animated the process. But, um, you know, there's a lot of yeoman work, plowing work, that happens when you research, you know. And I approached it uh, with that kind of energy, but I'm also a curator. You know, I curated at MoMA and the Tate Modern. And as a curator, the question I'm always thinking about is, what are we failing to see? And what can I then give a platform to that would enrich our lives by having seen it? And that's the same kind of method that I used when I did this research. What story are we missing? What does it deprive us of to not know about Samuel Morse, right? Or Ben Saunders, or Arctic explorer Ben Saunders, or these Nobel Prize winners. And when, this, when the story gripped me and kind of gave me chills in that sense, with that kind of filter on it, then I knew it was right for the book. That's exactly how I pick 
stories and authors for this show. It's got to get me in the gut. And I don't, it's not even a mathematical equation. It just has to hit me on an authentic level. And then I find that other people respond to it as well. So some, a story could have all the, you know, logically we should do this story, but it just doesn't hit you. Exactly. I think instinct is our highest form of intelligence, you know, and that's a lot of what we're talking about. So uh, this, this quote, what you just said reminded me of it. The gift of failure is a riddle, like the number zero. It is a void and also the start of infinite possibilities. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote that in one of my moments of terror. <laughs> and I was holding on to that idea because that's you, really what started the book. Do you have and, moments of terror? This is a difficult topic to write about. <laughs> you know, it hasn't been discussed. It's very, it's pioneering territory, really, which um, is on my mind a lot because I'm, I'm thinking also about Maya Angelou's recent passing and how much her life inspired this book. The epigraph uh, has a quote of hers there. And how much, for me, the idea about the resilience and the power of the human spirit is what I wanted to honor with this book, you know. So the riddle, the gift of failure, the riddle of failure really had, for me, um, it was a way to examine uh, the paradox of this human spirit, that it's sometimes seemingly indomitable, you know. And that, that, I think, is what Maya Angelou's work oftentimes is really about at its core. Uh, here, I'll just, I'll just say one line from it. I think I feel her kind of smiling down. <laughs> you mind if I read it? No, please. So she says, we may encounter many defeats, but we must not be defeated. That sounds goody two-shoes, I know but I believe that a diamond is the result of extreme pressure and time. Less time is crystal. Less than that is coal. Less than that is fossilized leaves. Less than that and it's just plain dirt. In all my work, in the movies I write, the lyrics, the poetry, the prose, the essays, I'm saying that we may encounter many defeats. Maybe it's imperative we encounter the defeats but we are much stronger than we appear to be and maybe much better than we allow ourselves to be. That was Sarah Lewis speaking live to us at the UBS Forum in downtown St. Paul. Her new book is called The Rise, Creativity, the Gift of Failure, and the Search for Mastery. That's all the time we have for A Beautiful World this week. Special thanks to all of our live guests and to our stage manager, Annalise Tarnowski, our sound engineers, Kyle Swanson and Corey Schreppel, our technical director, Eric Stromstad, our producer, Jennifer Elise Larson, our news editor, Chris Worthington, our creative director, Tony Bull, and our executive director, Tim Reisler. I want to thank you most of all for being here. I hope the stories that we brought you today have illuminated one thing, that no matter what your particular failure is, rest assured there's a gift in there somewhere. I hope the stories that we brought you have given some ideas about what it might be and where to start looking for it. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Heather McElhatton, and this is A Beautiful World from American Public Media. Music